listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. here in North America, we're familiar that February 2nd is right around the corner. And February 2nd, for those North Americans, is known as Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day is that moment where you decide or and figure out sort of just suspiciously whether or not the groundhog will see his shadow. Meaning that if it's a sunny day and Punxsutawney Phil makes his way out of his hole and he sees his shadow, you're sure of six more weeks of winter. It's a cloudy day and he doesn't see his shadow. Spring is coming soon. The funny part about Groundhog Day is it was sort of memorialized by that Bill Murray. That's not good. Let's see if we can get this. Is that better? Bill Murray, we'll just deal with technical issues. So Bill Murray starred in this movie called Groundhog Day. This is going to be a pain. All right. If I start screaming at you, it's not because I'm mad, okay? So in the process of all of those things, oh, yeah, maybe we'll just do that. This is messing up my hand movement, so I have no idea what's going to happen from here on out. I tend to be one of those guys, so I don't know what to do, but we'll, we'll just we'll roll with it. So anyway, back to my story. Uh, Bill Murray starred in this movie called Groundhog Day. And it is an interesting story. So he was uh, playing the role of this really arrogant weatherman. And every year on February 2nd, he had to go and cover the story of Punxsutawney Phil. And he hated doing it. It was the worst thing ever. And this year he had gone down and started to cover the story, just wanted to get it done as fast as possible. And all of a sudden, a huge snowstorm came in. And so he was stuck in this small little town, having to stay there another day when all he wanted to do was leave. And then all of a sudden, he goes to sleep in this hotel room, and he wakes up, and what is it? It's still February 2nd. So he has to live the day all over again, the, the worst day of his life, as he would portray it, and totally frustrated. And this continues to happen, and so he ends up growing more and more frustrated and aggressive with handling his situation. So he begins to realize that no matter what he does, nothing is ever going to change. And so he tries everything. There's a guy that really annoys him on the street and he punches him in the face. He's like, it doesn't really matter what I do anymore because all of these things are just going to continue to happen. He has to relive this merry-go-round of life. One day he chooses to uh, steal this truck uh, steal Punxsutawney Phil, put him in the front seat and drive off a cliff, right? Just hoping that somehow in some way if he does the right thing, everything will change. And nothing works. Day in and day out, he's forced to live the worst day of his life. Until something happens. He begins to have a budding interest in his coworker and begins to start to fall in love. And so Something unique happens halfway through the story, and that uniqueness is, is he tries to figure out, based on love, what he can do to learn and get this woman's affection. So his whole life begins to change. He begins to learn to play the piano. He becomes the nice guy 
around town. He begins to think and learn all of these different things as he lives this day over and over and over again. Finally, at the end of the day, because his life has been sort of utterly changed by the events of those things, eventually at the end of the movie, not to give it away, but what ends up happening is he wakes up one day and it's February 3rd. I would like to suggest to you this morning that as we dive into working through our Heartbeat series, what we're going to be jumping in today is what we call growing in emotional relational health. But if I'm honest with you, what it really means is dealing with the rawness of emotions and feelings that we have with wounds that we've experienced from people. There's every single one of us have been hurt in numerous different ways and maybe consistently hurt. And I would like to suggest this morning that many of us, even myself at times, are living Groundhog Day. We're provided with those two very options. To say to ourselves, no matter how hard I try or what I do, nothing ever changes. Or to come to the realization that we need change. Those are the options that lay before us biblically as we consider the difficulties and even the rawness of our emotions as we look back on relational hurt and pain that each of us have experienced from people we've loved and trusted, moments of feeling betrayed, wondering why people responded and did the things that they did. There's a level of confusion, and when that confusion continues to become a part of nourishing our heart and mind, we fill in those vacancies and those unanswered questions with what? Worst case scenario, right? We, we don't have a, a great ability to know specifically what's going on. And so we're wrestling with two very simultaneously emo, simultaneous emotions at the same time. One is, what is God possibly doing and how could he let this happen? And two, I'm never going to put myself in that situation again. <laughs> I, I don't want to open myself up to the enormous hurt and pain that I've felt. And so there's a level of self-protection that we think that we have to take in terms of moving forward in relationships. And I'd like to suggest to you as we walk through our Heartbeat series this morning that there is a, a, a biblical precedent that God sets for helping us understand relational hurt and pain. That there's a sense in which we really don't have to live Groundhog Day over and over again. There's a, a sense in which if we pull back far enough, we can begin to understand two very fundamental things. One, the character and nature of God in the midst of relational hurt and pain and the reality of what he's doing in our life through it. That there's not just a desire to grin and bear it and hope it goes away or really what happens is we hope that the other person who's hurt it just comes to their senses and realizes what they've done, right? And how often does that happen? About as often as the Cowboys win the Super Bowl, right? I mean, it just doesn't, I, sorry, I had to throw it in there. It's a Brady Cowboy week. I'm just letting you know uh, my, my bets are in. But I will say that there's just that sense in that we, we continue to revisit these places, and what ends up happening is we become pretty gun-shy with regards to trusting other relationships because of how we've been hurt in the past. And so what I want to do is I want to lay that hurt on the table this morning for all of us, and I don't know specifically what yours is, but I guarantee you that you have it as well as I do. And this week has been a tough week because I've had to look into it, not just from the standpoint of, I wonder how they're going to receive the message of wrestling with the wounds that they've experienced. I've had to wrestle with my own, current ones, past ones. We've got to look at the scriptures and allow it to examine our heart in such a way to ask ourselves, what possibly could God be doing? So the fundamental starting point is this. 
There is no accidental relationship that exists in your life. God is not an arbitrary God. He's intentional and purposeful. So every person in every event, in every moment of your life has been brought into your life for some reason. That there's a level of growth and transformation that God is doing in each of us through all of the challenging relationships that we've felt and have felt and have a part of our life and experience. And so when we talk about our mission statement, here's what we're saying. We say that we're called to discover life and the power of God's grace. Fundamentally true. The reality is, is as we look at these places of our heart where we've experienced those emotional and relational wounds and challenges, this becomes all the more true. (laughs) How in the places where my heart has been hurt and feels wounded, sensitive, and even at times dead, could I discover life in that space? Where does grace meet me in that moment where I would do anything then have to address or deal with that significant pain. And then sharing his life-changing grace with others moves our understanding and our wounds into this gospel-centered perspective, which is that we begin to understand that what God is doing in us is not just for us. That there's a, a significant movement towards understanding the role and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives in such a way that it impacts the lives of those around us. So that's what's on the table. That's our mission statement, which we've been walking through, our our five points of vision as we think about accomplishing or praying that the Lord would work and discovering life in the power of God's grace and sharing his life-changing grace with others. means that we have to meet those places in our heart where we have hurt. We have wounds and things that we would just rather have to not address. And so what I want to move to this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul has written a second letter to a church. The first letter to the church was, well, let's say blunt. (laughs) He was pretty concerned about the things that had been going on in the state of the church as a whole. He was willing to take to task the dysfunctional relational realities that existed within the church in Corinth. He was ready to take on the compromises that existed within how the church conducted itself in relation to God and relation to others. There were significant concerns about what they were okay with and what they were doing and what they thought God was about or just not really wanting to do the hard stuff to handle the situations in the church. And pocketed right in the middle of 1 Corinthians, he gives us the the chapter on love, right? Almost all of the different wedding ceremonies that we've been to. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is uh, not easily angered. Like all of these things, he's, he's helping us understand that the, the framework of, of love and the work of the gospel is not just something that we get to believe, but something that fundamentally changes how we interact with God and how we interact with others. And so then he, in a very much more, I don't know, kind of personal, raw level, Paul writes a second letter to the church in Corinth. He's been given an update from Titus and says, hey, here's what's going on. And, and Paul begins to share with them just the, the real nuts and bolts of how he understands the work that God has done in him and how it impacts those around him. The significance of his suffering in relationship to the church, what that means. And I think what it does is it gives us a window 
that the options that Groundhog Day would give you of I've tried everything and nothing works versus I need change, Paul would con- confess unequivocally that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he would choose option two. He would come to the realization that he, as does every one of us, need change. So here it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 3 through 11 this morning. Here's how Paul communicates it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 3 through 11. Nope. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11. I was like, that doesn't make sense. That's not what I read. Here it is, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises from the dead. Circle verse 9. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So also, you also, must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. So here's Paul communicating very clearly that things are tough. There's hardships that have marked his journey. There are challenges, frustrations, betrayal, and wounds that would be part of his story. And he communicates about those things as a realization that the comfort that he's experienced from God is a comfort that is tangible, noble, and not just for him. It's interesting, as he starts off this passage, what does he say? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he uses this unique term, the Father of mercies. The term itself means that he's the origin or the originator of mercy. Mercy starts and was started with God himself. Then he tells us that he's the God of all comfort. So that means that every moment in your life where you have even had an inkling that you felt comforted, it has been an intentional gift from God, the Father of mercy. That any moment that you've felt an encouraging uh, word from a friend or you've been in your time of prayer and you felt a sense of relief or strength or courage, you been given to you and directed to you by God. When you've been in a situation where you've had to make a hard decision to make the right decision to follow God above other things and you felt that sense of strength and courage to do those things, that has been purposely given to you by the God of all comfort. 
The unique part of this word comfort is not that it's about feeling better, but it's about feeling stronger. The sense of what Paul is alluding to here is that what God is giving us is not just a warm hug so everything feels great. It's the courage and strength we need to do the right things before us. That it's a coming alongside and an empowering of of grace and strength through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be about equipping us to do and deal with the hard things before us. I love what he says in these first few verses because he tells us not only did he experience that comfort, but in the midst of that comfort who comforts us in our affliction, it happened so that as I tell my story, you would find courage as well because you would know that the God who did a mighty work in me even when I was at the point of death and thought that there was no way I could get through this situation God worked and provided courage and strength and his relationship and intimacy with him and and growth and drew me through that so that as I share my story, what ends up happening? You can borrow some of the courage because that same God is working in you. That there's an ability for us to comfort one another through the stories of the work of Jesus Christ in each of our lives. And so he's telling us that as we see the relationships around us and the woundings that we've experienced so often, if we're honest, we default to outcomes. We say to ourselves, well, God, if you're at work and I've prayed the right prayers and I've done the right things, then something should be different. And when people don't change in the framework we want them to change or in the time frame we want them to change, what ends up happening? We get discouraged. We find ourselves wondering if anything we do really matters. I mean, I've said to myself in my own heart numerous times, I've said, I could have been so much worse of a person and gotten the exact same outcome. You ever said that? Maybe that's just my weird head. But I've wondered inside myself, like, does it really matter what I do? But then when I I invite people into that pity party, what ends up happening is I'm able to uh, blind myself to the comfort and strength that God has provided throughout my entire journey. What, What Paul is calling the Corinthian church to do here is not just to look at his story and the power of the resurrected Christ at work in his life, but to remember the reality that every time they felt comfort at any moment in their life, that comfort has been directed to them by God. That the raw foundation of the whole thing is that God sees every little minute detail of your life. Every moment where you've grown frustrated and uncertain that this relationship could ever get better. You've wondered, even in the midst of trying to be faithful and move towards repentance and forgiveness and and own your own junk, which I need to own my own junk, and wondering if somehow owning that junk is going to then strike a chord in their heart so that they'll own theirs. And when they don't, you feel like you've just given them all of the power and that they've gotten what they wanted, and we worry about all of these outcomes of what God is going to do. What Paul says here is that the, the hope of what God is giving us is the work and the strength that God gives us through a relationship with him. I mean, we realize, right, as you look through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is identified as the what? The the comforter, right? 
That means that he's the one providing for us in an intimate relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit has come to provide us comfort that there's a a knowledge and an awareness and a strength that is supernatural that's given to us as we walk through thinking and seeking to be faithful. Rather than this merry-go-round of wounded relationships and having them continue to pile up, I mean, how many of us would say, if we were totally and completely honest, that sometimes how we interact with the people around us is because of the fact that other people have hurt us? I mean, how frequently are people bearing the burden and paying the price for existing wounds that we've experienced years ago? I would confess to you that it's all the time that we are all products of the reality of the wounds that we face. And in the process of God healing us and transforming us, what he's doing is calling us to be aware of what? Our need for him. He's calling us to discover life in the power of God's grace. That there's an admittance that we don't have the ability to repair or fix the relationships that have hurt us the most, but yet in the process of those things, those wounded relationships don't define us. God does. And as he defines us and allows us to experience intimacy with him, what does he do? He he moves us to the place of realizing that the change that he is doing in each of our lives through all of those things is the best thing that could ever happen. That we need change because it draws us into trusting and deeper intimacy with him. It applies the gospel and the rescuing, transforming grace of Christ into our lives every day. We see our need for Jesus when we look at fractured relationships and say, I've tried everything and it's just not working. When we come to an end of ourselves, we, we realize, just like Paul said, like we thought we were at the point of death, but God was at work in extreme ways. That's why when people choose to walk away from us, it's so painful because it's anti-comfort, <laughs> We have this promise of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, giving us courage and strength and hope. And people are, uh, you know, the desire and the knowledge is that Jesus will never leave us and forsake us. And so there's this consistent reality of, of guarantee. But when we walk into relationships and people walk out of our lives, it, it just absolutely challenges us because it, it's, it's the very thing that we hope never happens, but happens all too frequently because it just reminds us of our need that Jesus will never do that. And so what do you do in the midst of those moments? I would say that every ounce of comfort that we've been given is for you and for others. One of the things that I would want us to look at this morning as we think about Groundhog Day and not reliving those things or just confessing or admitting or even just wondering it doesn't matter what we do, nothing's ever going to change anyway to realizing that we are the ones that need the change is to admit that as God has comforted us, that comfort is not just for us. That there's a courage that the Lord embeds in our walk with him to do the right thing because the right thing is the right thing. Regardless of the outcome or regardless of the response, the commitment to loving Jesus Christ and pursuing him faithfully means that you and I will be called to step into the most messy situations that we will have to, with a courage outside of us, step into those really difficult moments and conversations, not knowing how the other person will respond, not knowing what it's going to look like, but doing it because we know that the strength that we've been given to be faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ is coming from him, not from us. 
he comes alongside of us. So what I'd like to suggest to you this morning as we kind of move through the rest of this passage is there's a verses, I said verse 9, and I want us to look at that very specifically again this morning as well as verse 10 because there are a couple observations that I think are really critical. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. So let me ask, just because I think the text forces us to ask this question. How much in the midst of the challenges that you and I face are we relying on ourselves? <laughs> are we trusting that we have the ability or capability to fix the situations around us? And how often do we come to the conclusion of saying, well, that didn't work. <laughs> Yeah, I, the, the, the pull in this text is to realize that all the circumstances around us and all the challenges we face and all the people that have run in and out of our lives, the chronic reality of what God is reminding us of is that we must, as followers of Jesus Christ, rely on him. That he is ultimately the source of our hope. And that's what he says in verse 10, which I think is so critical. He says, he delivered us from deadly peril and he will deliver us again. And then this is what Paul says, is, is sort of a, an attitude of resolve. He says, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So those are the two fundamental questions as we think about growing in emotional and relational health, as God is seeking to apply the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and discovering life in the power of God's grace in the midst of difficult relationships. Those are the two questions. How much am I relying on myself and how much is my hope set on him who will deliver us? Really, because it's a, it's a transfer, really, of, of attitude. It's a, it's a paradigm shift that, that really what Paul is saying is that regardless of what the outcome is, and even if, even if I try and figure out what deliverance might look like, my, my hope, my hope is set on him. Our hope is set on him. Why, why does that help? Well, what I'd like to suggest is that it helps because God is the only one in the entire universe that's able to initiate or instrument change. I mean, you've been in relationships. If you're married, they'll tell you every day you're not going to be able to change your spouse. <laughs> How often has that worked? Like, never. There's a place of realizing that change and transformation comes through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we look to his word and we realize the hope that he's given us, we find ourselves realizing that what God is doing is changing us and changing others through his work and his power both in our lives and through our lives in the lives of others. The story that the Lord is writing is one that will bring him glory. And so he's drawing us to himself and giving us courage to do the very things he's called us to do. That there's hope but that hope is found in him and him alone. I'd like to finish with this. Many of us have probably read numerous times through our journey or uh, uh, even memorized the Lord's Prayer. Right? The disciples come to Jesus, and here's what they say. Lord, teach us how to pray. He said, all right, here you go. Our Father, right, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And then what? Forgive us our debts or trespasses as we forgive those 
who have committed debts or trespasses against us. Why is that there? Have you ever just thought about that? So he starts off with God and how blessed his name is, and then he, he moves to the fact that our, our hope and our nourishment, our daily provision is found in God alone and is given to us by the God of the universe. And then he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Meaning that as we realize the debts that we've incurred and the need that we have for daily forgiveness with the God of the universe, it doesn't just stop there. It translates into the understanding and ability to move towards, as we know we need forgiveness, we move towards the opportunity to afford forgiveness to others. That there's debts that are incurred, relational debts, wounds that have taken place in the context of our lives in such a way that as we have to continue to revisit our need for the gospel, that because we've been so lavishly and richly forgiven by the God of the universe, we did not merit. There's no options that we had to say, hey, God, look how great I am. Just forgive me and we'll be good. There's a sense in which God has provided an opportunity for intimacy because of his goodness and grace. And as we discover that goodness and grace and we remember how deeply we daily need rescue, it moves us towards the mess, not away from it. And that we would be willing to move into those places of forgiveness, of grace, of recognizing that God has given us the strength and courage to be faithful to him because he's in charge of the outcomes and we are not. So as a church, what I'd like you to invite you to do is just maybe confess that as we move to prayer. There are hard things that are before you and me in the days and weeks ahead, challenges in relationships. And the one thing, if there's anything that you got from this morning, would be to confess that very thing. Our hope is set on him. The courage that we need is found in intimacy through faith in Jesus Christ and that we will be comforted. And as we're comforted or given that strength, we'll be able to comfort others because our hope is set on him. Let's pray this morning. Father, we do recognize that um, we need you. It's hard at times to look at those places of betrayal, rejection, just relational and emotional wounds that we've walked through that we're wondering what possibly you could be doing. We question uh, the motives of others. Sometimes we even find ourselves disappointed in how slowly it seems that you're changing people's lives. But we confess two things, that we need change and that our hope is set on you. So God, I would ask for all of us collectively as a body, we pray that you would change us. And God, that our lives, our hope, would be anchored in you, in you alone. For your glory, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.